Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. My name is Lucas Rappel, and today we'll be talking to Michael Zakim about his fascinating and beautifully written new book, Accounting for Capitalism. Michael is a professor at Tel Aviv University, where he teaches courses on cultural history, U.S. history, and the history of capitalism. Accounting for Capitalism is Michael's second book. Previously, he wrote Ready-Made Democracy, which is a history of the man's business suit, in 19th century America. With his new book, Michael continues his exploration of how the market came to be at the center of American culture and society, or as he sometimes put it, puts it, how capital became an ism during the 19th century. But rather than seek to answer this question by looking at fashion and the garment industry, he now gives us a history of the office clerk, that mundane but ubiquitous figure who was ever present in 19th century America, writing correspondence, keeping accounts, and as Michael forcefully argues, producing the political economy of modern capitalism. This book does an excellent job of bringing many of the questions, ideas, and methodologies that listeners will know from science studies, things like the turn to material culture, the performativity thesis, and the fraught but productive entanglement between matters epistemic and economic into dialogue with economic history, business history, and cultural history. So it's a real treat to have him join us today. So thanks for joining us, Michael. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, if you could, please tell us a little bit about yourself, how you became interested in history and the history of capitalism, and also how you arrived at the topic for this particular book that you've just published. Okay. Well, I'll tell you, the history of capitalism, as large as, as it is, as large a subject as it is, is in many ways just a, a, a... belongs to an even larger gestalt, which I like to think about as the history of modernity. And that's first and foremost what interests me. That is the death, the death of the absolute, the death of certainty that perhaps we can date from the 17th century and its replacement by the flux and mutability and fungibility, the perpetuum mobile of a culture that we recognize as modern. It, I think this is both a moral and a material a, a, a dynamic and what I find important to understand is the interconnection between the the moral and the material modern, the project of modernity, and capital, or I should be more specific, capital's transformation into an ism, into a capitalism, seems to me to exemplify this intensely revolutionary moment where the world gets turned upside down. more specifically, vis-a-vis capitalism, I can say that I read a lot of Marx in college, and he utterly convinced me that subjects like ownership, ownership of property, the various forms that property assumes, the property's invention and reinventions, the term determination of value and who gets to determine, in fact, the value of value acquired a wholly new importance sometime in the late 18th or early 19th century. And on a more personal note, 
vis-a-vis the subject of my scholarship. I spent my 20s on kibbutz, so I was a close witness to what it was an implosion of what had been a successfully collectivized community that lived lived in real socialist fashion. And more generally, I've been a close witness, of course, to Israel's own great transformation from a highly collectivized society to an increasingly commoditized one. As for the book itself, the subject, the notion of devoting a book to the history of clerical labor and the conceit that such an ostensibly narrow focus could produce an accounting of capitalism. In part, it began as unfinished, it began with unfinished business from a previous book I'd written about the invention of ready-made, clo- ready-made suit, or the business suit, and this new white-collar class that I wanted to understand a little better. Um, I can, I, I'd also say that Herman Melville is a big an important influence on my understanding of America. And of course, in 1853, he wrote, a, a published a short story entitled Bartleby the Scrivener about a Wall Street copy clerk who worked in a commercial law office. Bartleby being, in fact, the archetype of modern schizophrenia. And I wanted to understand why this archetype of modern schizophrenia why um, um, Melville made him, in fact, a Wall Street clerk. Certainly, I noticed in my own research that these uh, increasing numbers of clerks who were filling up American towns and cities were a constant subject of popular conversation, a conversation that was trying to understand what historians have since recognized to be a labor problem, that is a crisis in in, 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 in value, in, in whether it's material value or ethical value. And, and, and last but not least, I, I find myself intellectually drawn to subjects that are ostensibly in the margins of society because a, one could almost say banal subjects, for instance, ready-made clothing or a, the paperwork of a 19th century clerks I, uh, I have a sense that that, in, particularly in a, in a market society, in a capitalist society, that's where the action is. That's where power, in fact, is, is being actively generated. So in that respect, I've always thought Hannah Arendt got it all wrong, that the banality of evil isn't Nazism. In fact, it's capitalism. Great. Well, thanks a lot. So let's talk a little bit more about that. So you mentioned that much of what this book is about, or in many ways the book is organized, organized around the figure of the office clerk, the business clerk. And um, one thing that I found particularly fascinating and fresh and kind of interesting about the book is its resolute focus on the mundane aspects, the kind of everyday aspects of life of the office clerk. So I'm wondering if you can just tell us a little bit more about what made you decide to write a history of American capitalism in the 19th century from the clerk's perspective, and in particular, if you could explain this obsessive focus with the material culture of the office, the manual labor of penmanship, the physical experience of sitting in one place for a long time, and so on and so forth. So what, what brought you to this particular set of issues, given your kind of larger interest in the world turned upside down, as you put it? Right. right. Well, materiality, this is an intensely in an, a, a, a world of intensifying materiality, and at the same time, a world of intensifying de 
materialization. And I don't think that that's at all a contradiction. More appropriately, we would, we would talk in terms of a dialectic. Certainly, they don't, uh, they're not mutually exclusive. That the world filling up with goods uh, it was a world increasingly dedicated to turning these goods into commodities that, uh, by nature, were highly abstract, that is, dematerial. Uh, at once immaterial and material, the world uh, 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 where it, so 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 in short, I, I was struck with in fact. So this is the world the clerk is making, and uh, and it's a world of intense material experience at the same time. So I wanted to play again with this duality that's at best duality and certainly again not a contradiction. The book's main argument is this, that the main production project in a capitalist economy is the production of the market. And that's an important argument to make. It denaturalizes the kind of liberal or neoliberal ideologies in which we live today. Again, I said it's an obvious, uh, almost a banal argument to make, but I think it has to be increasingly spelled out and spelled out in the most historical actual terms of experience, and that's what I've tried to do. So if the market is capitalism's principal production project, because all the other projects of producing for the market make no sense if there's no market in which these goods then could be bought and sold, well, that then turns the office, or what I guess in contemporary jargon was mostly called the counting room, into the primary, and certainly a primary site of industrial age mass production, which ironically or surprisingly, but it shouldn't surprise us, turns the clerk into really one of the most important industrial producers or a, a wage laborers of, a, a, of an economy devoted to mass production. Contemporaries certainly understood that. And, if we, and even a cursory glance at the... It, the statistics plotting uh, the move from, from country to city in the middle decades in the 19th century, we find, in fact, that this was, that they were filling tens of thousands of these young men were moving off the land and uh, selling their labor on the market, a, a labor that would be then devoted to administering the new economy in the counting house. So, uh, so, yeah, so the mundane was uh, entailed an entirely new understanding of what production meant, what industry means, what labor uh, uh, entails, uh, labor crisis, as I alluded to earlier, an increasingly abstract understanding of these terms because they had been detached from the kind of static uh, agrarian experience of the American household that had been dominant in the 17th and 18th century. In conservatives certainly accused the, these clerical types of, in fact, producing nothing of value themselves. And in that respect, properly or correctly identifying them as a radical challenge to tradition, tradition a traditional economy, traditional moral economy, and traditional manhood. But I go on to argue that, indeed, if not only were they producing things of value, they actually, more significantly, they were producing a whole new system of value. And in fact, that now in the office was what they spent 10 or 12 hours doing. 
this is obviously a, a knowledge project. That is, that's what they're producing. When I say in most in these in such abstract terms, they're producing the market. That in fact means they're producing knowledge. Prices being the most obvious Hayekian expression, epistemological expression of this new market economy but also endless other forms of information that we're also being endlessly updated, whether it's the condition of markets here or there, customs and duties, protocols, inventories, advertising circulars, all the bills and the receipts, the endless paperwork. And it's an important term, paperwork. And the both asked, both, both uh, 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 parts of that expression it should be emphasized. So, uh, so with where there's no bills, receipts, and where there's no paperwork, there's no capitalism. Uh, which I guess we could take one more step and reach the conclusion that in fact capitalism is first and foremost an epistemology, and that's certainly what I try to argue in uh, in a study that seeks to account for capitalism. So, yeah, summing up, it's an obsessively material experience, uh, one of manual labor, if not tr- that manual labor that we traditionally assign such a label to, it, but at the same time, a manual labor devoted to creating a world that was melting into air. Yeah, that's super interesting. I'm sure that many listeners for this channel, the Science, Technology, and Society channel, will be super interested to hear you talk more about exactly what you mean when you say that the, the market itself was a product of 19th century capitalism, that it was produced through um, manual material interventions of various kinds, especially having to do with paperwork being done in the office. But before I ask you to kind of talk a little bit more about that, let me back up and ask another kind of question that um, I think uh, it's important to kind of uh, get out of the way at the outset, which is to push back a little bit um, and to offer one of the kind of critiques that a lot of uh, both practitioners of the history of capitalism, but also a lot of critics of the history of capitalism often engage with, which is the claim that uh, traditionally the history of capitalism has uh, primarily focused on the importance and the experience of fairly elite, often quite economically wealthy white male individuals in history. And if you write a history of 19th century capitalism from the perspective of the office clerk, to some extent you're, of course, reproducing that sort of uh, trend in the genre. So I just wanted to ask you to kind of speak a little bit more explicitly and, and, and a little more extensively about why you think that it's important to write a history of the, I think in the introduction of the book you call it the history of the winners, which is to say um, a history of the ruling class, but told more or less from the bottom up. So a history of the ruling class told from the perspective of the mundane life of the office clerk. And, and told from the bottom up in another more important e- e- e meaning, and that is that they were not always e- they were not always in control. This is a new ruling class, and we have to understand, in fact, how they made themselves. E- in, in that respect, I think it's extraordinarily important e- to write scholarship that can explain the provenance of dead white men and their, uh, and their power, which should not for a moment uh, be understood as self-evident. But that in fact, and, and so, but if we, but it often is. 
It often is, and in that respect, we find, or I found, that we have very few histories of the powerful. We have very few critical histories, not only of the powerful, but more importantly, of the nature of their power and how that power came into being. And in that respect, I think we need to welcome a new emphasis, a scholarly emphasis on studying the history of capital and the history and capital's transformation into an ism, and in more general terms, the history of the economy, as an opportunity to finally, after almost a hundred-year hiatus, at least in, amongst American historians, to create a serious opus of critical studies of the nature of, a, 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 of the commodities rule over our lives. A, so it, it's so so what I what I've a, strained to do here is 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 to is to provide an explanation of how new forms of uh, new capitalist forms of power were created and how they're wielded, in a, which, again, I think has been systematically and inexcusably, I should say, ignored. We think, a, we, we've often thought of the social history and the labor histories and the histories of the underclass a, and of the subaltern experience as an important historical correction over the past few decades of historical scholarship. But I think, in fact, a, a, the result has been the opposite. I, I remember that with my own experience before even going to graduate school, for instance, reading labor history, which sought to, in the 80s and the 90s, sought to offer, beginning in the 1970s even, beginning, sought to offer an alternative narrative, but in fact it left us with something of a celebration of a vibrant worker's paradise, largely where there largely were no capitalist classes. We, one a reader could have finished most of these histories misunderstanding American history with the illusion, in fact, that capital had not a, a, a achieved unrivaled power. Business history, I found, was actually a little better about this, if only because it recognized this internal dynamic or dialectic in the rise of capital to power between chaos and control. But nevertheless, histories of business were being written from the same assumption as labor history, and that is that the commodity form was a transcendent fact of life. It was where they started their history, so that it, in fact, the commodity or capitalism was given no history at all. This was the historical given, and now we'll try to explain labor's resistance, or uh, businesses uh, ultimately successful or often unsuccessful attempts at managing the same. So it ended up, all these attempts at writing, writing from the bottom up ended up reifying history from the top down. That is capitalism's own claims, paradoxically, of course, but the focus on the, of, on the subaltern had resulted in a scholarship that naturalized the ideology of the market because it turned dead white men into a permanent category, self-evident category of human experience, uninterrogated, unwritten, in fact. So uh, this is important, very important work that needs to be done, and it's only just begun. Much of the history of capitalism needs to focus then not just on capital, but its interaction 
with those other aspects, those other parts of society that, uh, that were colonized ultimately by the commodity. So uh, to make my long answer even longer, I, I'd sum up and, and, and say that a, a, a power is a, a highly historical category. It keeps changing its identity. It keeps changing the conditions of its existence, the conditions of its rule. It's, there's nothing self-evident about it. There's nothing transcendent about it. If history is ultimately a subversive practice because it shows us that things were not always the way they are today, then this is where we have to begin writing our histories, that is, with an account of the winners, just to show just how contingent their present status or present uh, privileges are. Yeah, interesting. So kind of looking behind the commodity, commodity fetishism, uh, of the historical profession. Oh, I'd like thank you for introducing, <laughs> for interjecting fetishism. So yeah, it's as if they've the commodity has been fetishized by those who ostensibly, who ostensibly protesting its power. Yeah. So let's return to something that you um, brought up in a previous response to one of my questions, which is the social, epistemic, and maybe material construction of the economy itself. So I want to read you a quote uh, from. Uh, fairly early on in your book, I think it's from page 14, you say that uh, the economy itself was a cultural achievement. The market was quintessentially an industrial event, a man-made reconstitution of the material world. So I want to ask you to kind of talk us through a little bit more, um, in a little more detail about what you mean by this. So what do you mean when you say that the, the economy itself was produced by industrial capitalism during the 19th century, perhaps among other things by clerks uh, working with account books and so on and so forth in um, in the office place. And if you, given that this is a, a podcast in the uh, New Books in Science, Technology, and Society series, if you want, if you if you could also maybe relate some of your thoughts on this to the work of people like Donald McKenzie, for example, or Tim Mitchell, who will be perhaps more familiar to listeners of this podcast. Yeah, Tim Mitchell's important to me too because most of, he mostly writes about my neighborhood, my part of the world. His work on Egypt has been particularly important to my own development, not just as a scholar, but also as a denizen of the Middle East. Um, well, yeah, so, well, I, and I mentioned this earlier, first and foremost, it's important to denaturalize the status of the market, which, again, uh, anyone of uh, critical orientation knows that the market had to be actively and consciously uh, adamantly constructed, that it, it is a production project. Nevertheless, I've sought here to spell out the details of how this came to be. It, now, it, well, I guess the immediate response it, by, on the part of any or most listeners will be, but, but you, you keep arguing that markets are critical to an understanding of the history of modernity but there might not be a more ancient institution or a, a ongoing aspect of human experience than markets, markets in terms of places that made exchange possible between separate parties. And all that's very, very true, but I think only in the 19th century did the market for the first time, and, and, and dramatically so, become synonymous with the economy. In fact, up till the industrial age, up till capital's transformation into an ism, 
most of the economy, most of the human economy was adamantly not part of the market, was kept separate from the market. And of course, the fact that we, in our conversation today, keep referring to the market as the singular, using, turning it into a proposition as, as a singular phenomenon, all-encompassing phenomenon, is also a testament to its centrality and its ubiquity, its singularity, so to speak. And of course, I guess the most obvious observation to make is in the 19th century, it ceases for the first time to be a place apropos of our earlier conversation about the demon or, or comments about the dematerialization or the uh, uh, the abstract abstract uh, uh, character of this new economy there are no marketplaces anymore there is now the market uh, I would mention in these terms Jean Christophe Agnew's book uh, worlds apart which is a wonderful it's still the best <laughs> I think account of kind of the pre-modern history of the market or the market's introduction into a, into a world that had begun to modernize and its part in that modernization scheme. Of course, Agnew drew a lot on Karl Polanyi, who had devoted a, a, much of his life to studying the market as ontology and as anthropology, and then, of course, understanding the great transformation that occurs in the 19th century when he says, in fact, for the first time, that uh, the economy became, uh, that society became embedded in, in, in the economy rather than vice versa, and that this economy, for the first time, was embedded in the market. So Polanyi is a huge, by the way, is a huge intellectual influence on me, and I'm delighted to see that he's kind of been rediscovered now in our age of nervous kind of populist fascist threat, because he has an explanation uh, writing as he did in the 30s, he went back 100 years and sought out precedents in which, uh, uh, which in the market economy it gave, it could destroy human society to such an extent that it can explain the reversion to fascist uh, barbarianism. Uh, I'm also happy to announce that Polanyi has been translated for the first time into Hebrew. A wonderful translation which I'm editing and which I'll devote an introduction to. It should be out next year. So, um, a, by the way, so together with markets, accounting, bookkeeping is also not necessarily a modern technology. It's old. It's centuries old. A, although a, people like Weber or Zombart even more a, a famously argued that, in fact, the invention, the Renaissance the late Renaissance invention of double-entry bookkeeping augured a new world, a new modern world of movement and exchange and fungibility and, and utilities and calculability, of course. We, we, maybe. It might be true. But only now, I would argue, only in the past, only now with the ascension of the commodity to, to a sovereign a, a status did the accounts become a general experience, a general experience in business, of course, a, a apply now to whole new realms of economic a, 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 a activity, first and foremost, of course, labor. But it, the accounts also became a relevant model for social and even ethical relations. And this finds, uh, this finds its apposite ex, uh, expression in a, new, uh, in a new phrase, the bottom line, 
which in these years, it becomes for the first time synonymous with the absolute truth. In more practical terms, I'd like, I, w- I would argue that accounting uh, it reveals just how much the economy is an invention, or as some uh, writers on culture like to call it today, just how, uh, just how much the economy is a site of performativity. You mentioned Donald McKenzie earlier. He really is one of the best uh, on, a, on a, the artificial nature and I deliberately use that uh, oxymoron of the modern economy. I found Bruno Latour and, uh, to be no less helpful in understanding, in fact, how accounts did not, in fact, reflect an a priori material reality out there waiting to be inscribed onto the ruled page, but in fact, the accounts created that material reality since they've created the values that made exchange in the market possible to begin with. Exchange, of course, not in a place any place anymore between uh, agents who have encountered each other face-to-face and most often, in fact, knew each other if they were not, in fact, neighbors. All this now becomes possible because the accounts have turned, have created a universal language. A universal language that, uh, in fact, Although, however, its universality has to, we have to appreciate just how, uh, just how specific that in, and uh, 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 narrow that universality could be because it counted now only what could be, uh, what could be uh, recorded. And so uh, whole, whole swaths of the economy, whole swaths of labor, whole swaths of exchange that were not, uh, that had no, that were not accompanied by the appropriate paperwork and, re- and whose values were not recorded in integers in a ledger, disappeared. Disappeared from a political economy and from the record and from the state's ability to make policy. And, uh, and of course, the ledger's integers, the subjective expression of material reality, were in fact dollars. So here we get it. As Donald McKenzie would explain, we get an increasing sense of how much objective material reality is also increasingly synonymous with, uh, with money and profit. Yeah, great. Because money now is, 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 is in important in generating profit and not just for facilitating exchange. So I want to go back to some of your other comments about Karl Polanyi and his book, The Great Transformation, uh, and the contention uh, that within a capitalist economy uh, or a capitalist political economy, the marketplace uh, uh, is not just placed in the center of all social relations, but indeed that in some sense all of kind of culture and society is embedded within a market economy. And to ask you how you understand the kind of ramifications of this change in late 19th century, or excuse me, early to mid-19th century America. So as the marketplace became not just an arbiter of value, but the central arbiter of all value in American society, how that displaced other, perhaps older forms of social organization, and in turn gave rise to a distinctly modern conception of the liberal subject. So if I could ask you to kind of... uh, Describe your thinking on that process in a little more detail, and in particular, if you could explain 
a facet of your explanation or, or your um, exploration of that transition through what I thought was a particularly evocative and controversial, perhaps, phrase in the book, which is the end of patriarchy. So you describe the end of patriarchy in the early 19th century in the United States as a result of this transformation in the importance of the marketplace within a broader kind of cultural and society. Right. Yeah, that is the argument. Capitalism destroys patriarchy. It's not my argument. It's Karl Polanyi's argument. In fact, and it replaces, what, by patriarchy, I mean, of course, the agrarian household, which was the heart, the living inspiration of the creation of the American Republic and of republicanism as a way of life or as a political ideology. That patriarchy is replaced by actually a more rapidly gendered social hierarchy called fraternity. And fraternity being, of course, universal manhood. So now, of course, one's civic, uh, 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 civic standing it rests no longer on the ownership of land, uh, which uh, only included a, a minority of men in society, but now embraces uh, all men as men. So that's why uh, the new fraternity is, a, I would I, I argue, is a much more gendered a system a, of social organization. It, it, just think it by it, but the fact by the 1820s there's almost no restrictions anymore on the franchise restrictions on a, a property restrictions that had been a, a characteristic of all state constitutions it, written in the 18th century. They're all overturned by the 1820s. Now, so the ownership of land, in fact, is replaced by the ownership of the self. That's also what destroys uh, patriarchy or landed economy, agrarian economy, and is absolutely necessary for uh, the functioning of a capitalist economy. So the ownership of the self rather than of land becomes the ontological basis of civic uh, existence. This was critical uh, for creating market society of individuals who were free to continually negotiate uh, on their own behalf, they were allowed, in fact, they were encouraged, in fact, they had little choice, but to identify and then maximize their own interests. This, in fact, in, in, eight, in terms of the 17th and 18th patriarchal terms, and these were debates, of course, in political philosophy in, in 17th and 18th century England, most famously, I guess, between Locke and Filmer, but in patriarchal terms, it, 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 each individual seeking to maximize their own interests, becoming a common grammar, was in fact a paradox, and uh, inconceivably, and, and it couldn't possibly serve as the source of uh, social order. It, but here, in liberalizing America, or capitalizing America, in fact, that is exactly what happened. That in a fraternity, in a fraternal a, a political economy, a, everyone is a, a seeking to maximize a, their own position. This is the subject of Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. That, that's why he has to introduce a new term into the English conversation uh, in Democracy in America, and that is individualism. Or, in other words, the individual's transformation into an ism that parallels capital's transformation into an ism. And in fact, not, and, and, and these are very two very closely etymological developments that is, are in fact 
not restricted to the realm of etymology, but in fact are part and parcel and mutually supportive elements in the revolution of human society or its commodification. So, so accounting for capitalism devotes just as much time and effort to understanding this parallel transformation, the one that's so elemental or elementary to capitalism, and that is the rise of individualism, or what we so casually, uncritically refer to today as human capital. And that is the, uh, the, the, the marriage of, uh, of the individual with the bottom line. This, by the way, going back to Melville, this is why Bartleby strikes us as such a weird, incomprehensible, if not, as I referred earlier, a pathological figure. And that is he refuses stubbornly, consistently refuses through the course of the entire story to negotiate on his own behalf. Interestingly, this constantly it tips the balance to his favor as his employer keeps, keeps uh, uh, making uh, um, uh, 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 keeps seeking to appease him by uh, uh, improving the terms. But of course, Bartleby doesn't think in those in, in, in that way at all. It, be, which brings me back to Melville. I would make just one. Melville's so important to us, so important in order to understand a world now populated by self-maximizing individuals who operate in the marketplace, even when they're alone. And thus, I have half a chapter devoted to diary writing as a form of accounting as well as another form of double entry. Uh, because Melville, at least after 1850, everything he wrote is about a world, how asking uh, how a world without God can possibly exist, let alone order itself. I, I don't think he ever really uh, uh, answers that question. I'm not sure he, he was ever became convinced that it, it is possible. Uh, so... That's a meandering, that's the meandering beginning of an answer to your question, in fact, about what a, a capitalism's social impact or implications were on, a, on an American Republican a, tradition. Well, let me ask you a kind of follow-up question to that. So I was really struck in your response by the distinction that you drew between what you called patriarchy, or perhaps Polanyi called patriarchy, and what you're here calling fraternity, and <clears throat> its implications for uh, gender history in the 19th century. So one other common critique of the history of capitalism is that not only does it tend to focus on uh, privileged elites, but it also tends to focus on the male gender. So, um, uh, and it often leaves the category of the male gender unmarked, so it kind of assumes uh, uh, that the protagonists in the history of capitalism uh, are men uh, without kind of engaging explicitly with this fact. So in your book, one thing that's really refreshing is its explicit and kind of um, sustained focus on masculinity and the importance of the masculine gender in the history of capitalism. But I wanted to ask you if you could speak a little bit more about femininity as well. So where are the the women in this story? What is the importance of the home in the history of capitalism? What about female secretarial clerical labor in the 19th century? 
thinking, for example, about Julia Berabitsky's wonderful book, Sex in the Office, which uh, is mostly about the 20th century, but does detail, to some extent, uh, the history of female secretarial labor in the 19th century as well. Right. Well, you know, I already try to explain how important it is to write histories of the privileged elites and how few histories have been written on the subject. And as you also point out, it's no less important, and it's actually a rather associated undertaking, is to write histories of manhood or uh, the invention, or I, we should say in 19th century terms, the reinvention of masculine gender, which uh, takes up a, a lot of my own attention, or my own uh, uh, efforts to understand this phenomenon of capitalism uh, and its revolutionary implications for every aspect of life, social life, as well as private life. Uh, so you ask, well, where's the feminine in my accounting for capitalism? Well, there are no women, you noticed. There are no women. First of all, there are no women in the office because women only come to the office with the invention of the typewriter in the 1870s, which is revealing of a story that we are familiar with, but which is endlessly interesting and endlessly inviting of further rumination and research, and that is the intimate relationship between femininity and womanhood and technology and machine culture. We see that in the office as well. So, uh, so I, I think I've written a gendered history without women. Gendered in the sense that I'm very interested and seek to explain how a new form of manhood uh, came into being in the 19th century that was highly appropriate and uh, highly serviceable in terms of the new uh, uh, market economy. But this is a manhood that was less it was less defined in opposition to womanhood and more defined to a previous incarnation of manhood, which I call patriarchy, and thus my emphasis on the shift from patriarchy to fraternity. Gender, of course, is a function of class politics, although it most commonly is used to obscure class inequalities. And so it's an important subject. Um, can you write a gender politics without women? Well, I've, I've sought to do that. And, and uh, uh, I even think I might have succeeded. Uh, others might think otherwise. Uh, I've written elsewhere about femininity and its importance in the creation uh, of both manhood and womanhood in market society. Uh, uh, I think that the, the uh, key word here or the key Development, it takes place in the history of prostitution and the fact that all wage-earning women became whores in the discourse of the property classes in the middle of the 19th century. That is, selling their bodies was identified, in the labor market was identified as a form of prostitution and of equal moral, moral, moral problematic character. But the other critical aspect of this, of, of this reinvention of prostitution, of this capitalist prostitution. You think of Baudelaire, who was busy in these years writing. Of course, Walter Benjamin has carried on that, tradi- carried on that tradition later, was that a, a, the, the, this came at no fault of the prostitutes. That is, women were not to be blamed for their moral fall here. Uh, and they, here, uh, 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 capitalism can be said to have uh, uh, generated a culture of female victimization. 
the female as victim. This is a distinct bourgeois 19th century uh, um, dynamic. And then we ask, well, who was responsible? First of all, the market was responsible. The market was a dangerous place for women. And I think that's a safe, safe conclusion, almost as objective a conclusion as we can say about any other historical development about the, the new industrializing economy. The market was dangerous place for women. Uh, uh, women were particularly vulnerable to exploitation in all its forms. And this, of course, that kind of ideology, this victimization of women as women and poor women, because women with means didn't have to uh, sell their uh, labor power on the market, uh, of course, only strengthened the new middle class or the new capitalist version of the home. And that is that the home has no place in the economy, the political economy. It was a, was a masculine experience, and it, one taking place outside of the home in contradis- dramatic contradistinction to the agrarian household of the 18th century on which the republic had come to be. So, uh, uh, yeah, so there is no uh, production, there is no capitalist production in the home. Otherwise, it's not a home. Now, there are many homes where this capitalist production taking place because of the putting out system and sweating labor is spreading in the 19th century. Uh, 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 but these are then become very, uh, these are not homes in the proper sense of the word. They're almost pathological and become actually an opportunity for the propertied classes to portray the working classes as immoral, as unable to, in fact, sustain proper home life and raise children in a, in a moral fashion. And that, of course, ultimately justifies their uh, ability to dictate uh, proper uh, 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 modes of womanhood and manhood and motherhood and uh, domestic morality uh, at the same time without, uh, without it becoming a political dictation. They do it for the sake of the children, for the sake of a moral... Uh, moral uh, values, which are women's values. Well, we don't have to rehearse all of gender history and gender theory, but but most of most of this is not is left outside of my book. Except I would say there is one feminine element in my book. There is one woman. That's the clerk, because he's at least on the on the part of conservatives is is accused of being feminine. And feminizing the, the dandies of the desk was one insult often bandied around in the 1840s and 50s, and that is because he had betrayed traditional understanding of manhood, of economy, of industry, industry and industriousness, uh, and replaced them with uh, new versions. So, uh, in that respect, we have a shift from patriarchy to fraternity which is also a, a parallel to a shift from the republic to a democracy, a transition from moral economy to political economy, and ultimately, I would say, uh, a, a redefinition or the, a, a, the inversion of worldview from a static one in which the next generation's lives were supposed to resemble that of the previous generation, and the world was supposed to resemble that a, 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 that which exists to a dynamic a set of assumptions 
in which the next generation would lead different lives, lives now defined not by tradition, but by each individual's own ambitions and ability to imagine his own distinct personal fate and to make it so. Which, I guess, would lead us to the subject of the self-made man, wouldn't it? It seems like it wouldn't. Do you want to say more about that? (laughs) (laughs) Only because the self-made man is another new etymological novelty, right? It's a whole new phrase. I think it appears for the first time in the 1820s, and it's not only something newly spoken. I think self-making men are only now is 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 only becomes now conceivable because it it's a term that needs to be literally understood, right? A man who makes himself, and uh, that literal understanding immediately suggests to us that he's operating in a world. Well, first of all, who made men previously, up to let's say 1822? Who made men? Well, there's a rather obvious biblical uh, answer, and that is God made men. So the self-made man was, uh, a, a, was a most, most profane development and a citizen of a world without God, not only without God, apropos of my comments earlier about Melville as well, but a world without a prince, without masters, thus we'll soon uh, even abolish slavery and give uh, all male slaves a full civic uh, standing, and a world, of course, without patriarchs, because my father, uh, I have no father, I'm my own father, I make myself, there can't, there was, there's no more, I think, acute expression to uh, the individual's transformation into an individualism than this self-made man. Historians, and I seek to actually explain when he becomes monetized, when this, uh, uh, when this phenomenon becomes increasingly, um, and why it becomes increasingly defined in, in material or in mon- uh, monetary terms. But it's a radical, unprecedented condition. It's an acutely modern condition. Uh, it's an a- anti-traditional tradition. It's a tradition based on the end of, end of tradition, Tocqueville writes in Democracy uh, in America, uh, engages this theme as well, seeks to explain what, why it makes America, why, what is particularly democratic or American about these practices. And it obviously fits capitalism's shift from land to labor, that is from a static society and economy to a dynamic one driven by everyone's own ambitions. So those are self-making men. Well, let me ask you another follow-up question, which is if you could talk a little bit more about the material history of self-making. So another particularly fascinating aspect of the book I found was not just the resolute focus on the material culture of the office, but also a kind of, in later chapters of the book, a resolute focus on the material history of, I guess, the male human body. So if you could tell us a little bit about the kind of phenomenology of what it felt like to be an office clerk? What was the experience of someone sitting at a desk for 10 or 12 hours a day, writing correspondence, keeping accounts? What sorts of maladies did uh, office clerks experience? What kinds of medical therapeutics and medical treatments did they seek to cure those maladies? Uh, What kinds of physical exercises and other sorts of physical culture did they engage in to try to make themselves into the kind of men that they wanted to be? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for the phrase, make themselves 
make themselves into the kind of men they wanted to be. That's exactly the dynamic. Uh, that's exactly what's required of them. And, it's, uh, and it entails great effort and great self-consciousness, in fact, that they had, in, uh, uh, they had uh, um, begun uh, such a journey in their lives. Lives becoming such a journey. Biography becomes a very uh, popular literary genre exactly in these decades of the middle of the 19th century. And in addition, it's, uh, it's expanded by an entirely novel genre of autobiography, which is a new word, another new word, there you go, which suits a world of self-making men. It's, so rather than yeah. confessional literature, a kind of liturgical practice, autobiography is a kind of um, novelistic narrative yeah, in, 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 which, in which the point of reference is no longer, it's no longer derived from outside yourself, most obviously in the form of a deity, but in fact the point of reference now is yourself. So life becomes a journey and the autobiography constantly compares your progress or improvement in relation to where you had been previously. So even Franklin, who writes his memoir, in the 18th century, it only becomes a bestseller and it becomes an hysterical bestseller in the 19th century. And only then does it, in fact, acquire it, a new tie, its new title, which is the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, a word that Franklin himself had no access to because it didn't exist yet, just like individualism didn't exist. Well, you asked me uh, a, 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 to make a, 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 some reference to the the material experience of the clerical life, phenomenologically uh, um, embodied aspects of, um, of administering capitalist revolution. And I think what struck me and what I then went on to write about is that all is how, how, how everyone was constipated. Uh, there was an outbreak, it was an epidemic of constipation in the United States after 1830. And, uh, and, and uh, that uh, was itself, it, it, it was assigned a new diagnosis, a new ideological uh, uh, category of um, dyspepsia, which I think in fact still exists as a diagnosis largely used for heartburn. But by then, it was more of a meta-category that encompassed uh, the stomach and all disorders in the stomach. The stomach's very important because the stomach was connected uh, to the brain. The stomach was that these in the physiological paradigm that was dominant in, uh, in mid-19th century medicine. The stomach and the brain were the axis, in fact, of self-sovereignty. And they were connected, of course, by the nervous system, system of nerves. So... What you have are a, a whole new battery of new nervous disorders, new diagnoses of nervous disorders, a dyspepsia being an obvious one, many, many others as well, some of which maybe I'll take note of in a moment. But they, what's, what was so effective about dyspepsia, well, about all these nervous disorders are disorders of both body and soul. And... and uh, and in, the, in that respect, they're expressions both of the excitement and the ambition and the 
ability or the, if not, in fact, the obligation to imagine one's own prospects in life, which is a source of great anxiety and nervousness. And the new medical categories of nervous disorders were recognition of just how stressful, I'll use a very contemporary term, because I hope listeners at this point have realized that an accounting of capitalism 200 years ago is very much an accounting of of the reality in which we continue to live, the capitalist reality in which we continue to live today. So it's a very stressful life, and men were chronically ill. My clerks are chronically ill with all these new disorders, particularly constipated. I think that the diagnoses are indicative of two main developments. First of all, that men were just as hysterical as women. Although their hysteria was of a distinctly different order, and that it was for them an opportunity for a proactive response, that is to practice their own personal sovereignty by getting better, by getting better through uh, by means of an extensive protocol of uh, proper uh, behavior. If for women, of course, their hysteria became a, an opportunity to invite, in fact, control over their bodies by others, by masculine others. So here we have a male hysteria that is to be distinguished from female hysteria, but it doesn't mean that men were not sick with symptoms that, uh, that the medical uh, profession, at least, could not uh, locate the uh, physiological source of. Uh, I, I also, it's important to recognize in the new, uh, in the spate, in the 19th century epidemic of uh, uh, nervous disorders, an acknowledgement of the disordered nature of the times, that is, of this capitalist revolution of a world being turned upside down, which would make anyone nauseous. And in that respect, uh, thus requiring great effort. Uh, by each and every new individual to protect their health, uh, which in an individualized society was the equivalent, in fact, of protecting the health of the body politic in general. So that you end up, I I ended up being impressed that in fact everyone was sick or everyone was potentially ill. There were so many threats to their well-being that they had to be continually practicing, uh, surveying, their own, uh, uh, their own selves, in order to assure, uh, uh, in order to assure their own health, and that, in fact, that that uh, effort uh, in terms of keeping healthy, as a most Foucauldian event, it was a critical expression and a central expression of both individualism and capitalism. Probably the most notorious new diagnosis, of course, is masturbation. And there was a new disease that had been a sin for, for centuries. So masturbation was probably the most perfect medical expression of the new regime of individuality or individualism because it, it was a condition in which only, knew, only you knew you were sick. And in fact, only you knew if you had recovered. But I preferred it. Masturbation has, over the past few years, attracted not a little, high, very interesting scholarship of the highest quality. And I decided I would write, in fact, about stomach aches 
which my uh, clerks were rather explicit about in terms of their interaction, their suffering, and their uh, unending efforts to overcome. So uh, the stomach ache, so the dyspepsia presented, and uh, this is what I think turned it into an epidemic after 1830, it, it really represented a material response to the, a revolutionary condition of plenty or abundance that resulted directly from the new industrial capitalism. And not only plenty and material abundance, but all the new uh, dangerous desires that this unleashed. So that uh, dyspepsia became an ideal opportunity to practice this new democratic, liberal, individualized police. That is, I will assume exclusive responsibility for my own body politic. No one else has the right to do that. I will police my own desires. And how was that done? Uh, of course, but by eating right and by exercising. Well, we all know uh, Sylvester Graham introduces vegetarianism into American culture in these years. Uh, even those who continue to eat meat and even made fun of Graham's uh, uh, excessive zealotry uh, were subscribed entirely to this new ethos, this need for each and everyone to constantly uh, uh, maintain surveillance of their own uh, uh, bodily input and output, which was uh, effectively about taming their own desire. Uh, overly seasoned food we read in, in endlessly, both in diaries and, of course, in various behavior guidebooks for proper behavior on the part of uh, people, uh, individuals living on their own in a labor market. So overly seasoned food would incite a vicious circle of wanting more of it and thus an appetite that knew no bounds. So there's a lot of control over eating, not only what to eat, but how to eat. There's almost an interesting parallel between the techniques of eating and the techniques of copying and the paperwork. There's highly detailed attention paid to the smallest physiological movements. And of course, everyone started going to the gym. I mentioned earlier that this is the world we still live in today, and perhaps here it finds its most caricatured uh, expression, and that is by 1840, any number of clerks stopped off for an hour of exercise at the gym on their way down to Wall Street in the office. And here, perhaps, at the gym, self-making acquires its most insistently material, certainly its most insistently corporeal uh, manifestation, and here I, I would suggest in the gym, the new self-ruling class reached, uh, reached uh, an apotheosis and found itself uh, both in control of, it, of, a, 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 of itself and capable now of disqualifying those who did not take care of, properly take care of their bodies, did not properly eat well or exercise well, Again, not as a political act of disqualification, because in a democracy that was no longer allowed, but as a medical opinion. So, uh, in short, uh, uh, the constipation had a powerful role to play in naturalizing or legitimizing new forms of privilege and power. And, yeah, I could go on and on and on, because I, I found uh, the subject... There's never enough to say about constipation. So let me, um, we're running towards the end of our time, so let me just ask you sure. one more substantive question, and then I'll, I'll give you an opportunity to tell us a bit about what you're working on next. But before uh, we do that, let me just ask you about the United States Census. 
about which you have quite a lot to say in this book. So just tell us a little bit more about kind of the history of the census and in particular how the census evolved over the first half of the 19th century and what that, the evolution of the census uh, during the first half of the 19th century reveals about the culture of American capitalism at that time. Right. Well, it's not the census per se, although it is, I guess. It's really statistics, and statistics as a complementary technique to the accounts. And they have this, this very strong common denominator between these two forms, two technologies of knowledge, pun intended, of course. But the statistics, which are come into their own in the 1840s, both in Europe and in the United States, at the same time, statistical circles and statisticians are busy corresponding with each other throughout the world. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, by the time of the Crystal Palace in the early 50s, there's, or in the wake of the Crystal Palace, that is the world's first World's Fair, uh, they begin a series during the 1850s of World Statistical Congresses. Uh, but in any event, so statistics comes into itself as a, as a, as a, um, in a, a critical element in, in, in creating, establishing governmentality in a modern age of uncertainty and, and uh, constant flux and relativity. Uh, relativity. And the census proves to be the statistics' most politically effective tool or expression or device for making public policy and at the same time establishing social truth. So, by the way, this very important figure, Francis Lieber, who ends up even after the Civil War, a central figure in, in, in kind of the in reinventing government in the in the newly uh, 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 reconstituted republic, uh, who arrives in America from Germany, and opens a gym, and a swimming pool in Boston. Uh, by the 30s, that's in the 20s. By in the 30s, he's a professor of political uh, economy, and he becomes a very important force in what I would call statisticizing the census. Uh, it, this happens for the first time actually in Boston as well. In Boston in 1837, if I'm not mistaken, it might have been 1839, the American Statistical Association is founded. And not coincidentally, by 1845, the first statistical census is carried out, and that's the population census of the city of Boston. In 1845, using a taxonomy developed by someone named Lem, Lemuel Shattuck, who was actually the most important statistician in America in these years, a paradigm that's then adopted by the federal census of 1850, which is the first federal census to be a statistical census. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that for the first time, the census begins to count or generate knowledge that we didn't know beforehand. It begins to count a, 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 a phenomenon that we don't know exists. And this is done through, this is to be contrasted, for instance, to political arithmetic that's already developed in the 17th century in England. And there, the counting there, it's state-driven as well, and it's, there's a national census of sorts, but they know very well what they want to count. They, they need to know the number of hearths in the kingdom. They really want to know the number of able-bodied male 
males who were capable of serving in the navy or the armed forces in general. They want to know how much, and of course, in the age of mercantilism, they also want to have a sense of agricultural production. They know that these are essential categories for proper government or governmentality. By the 19th, the statistics says something else. Statistics says that we don't know what we don't know. So we have to create a new form of knowledge production that will then discover what we can't see. We can't see because we've lost, there is no single or singular perspective on all of society anymore. This is a past, post-absolutist age, just as political sovereignty has now been dispersed amongst all its citizens. So, in fact, has the perspective of everyone. Earlier, we talked about individualism and capitalism, for that matter, as being systems based on each and every one identifying or defining for themselves their own proper agenda or interests, which they will then pursue. So there is no general good that then informs personal behavior. The opposite is the case. And this now is what becomes the paradigm or the science of statistics. We don't know the whole yet until we've collected enough details or particulars of, uh, of individuals. And that's what's new about Shattuck's taxonomy in Boston in 1845 and then the federal census in 1850, which for the first time asks, inquires, that is, interrogates each and every person. And each and every person receives their own line in the census. Up until 1845, we, the only line, the lines were devoted to the patriarch, the head of the household. Only his name appeared in the census. Only his details appeared. And then an aggregate was taken of the age, span, and sex of those who lived under his aegis within the same household. That is no longer the case. So now that we've created a mass of particulars, unprecedented numbers, now we can begin to correlate. And that correlation and the cross-referencing, the almost limitless cross-referencing that becomes possible now that we've individualized or particularized the information, it, it, it then yields knowledge about, about, human, about the social state of social life that, that we didn't know, whether it's about the economy or whether it's about disease, and there were many questions about disease and mortality, whether it's about family size, whether it's about the size of the working population, working population now being equivalent to the waged population, output, use of machinery, the average wage being paid per, per state, per county, per niche in the economy, all these, all these cross-references now become a possibility. So this is a statistical world. It's largely parallel to a world of accounting, uh, the new world of accounting, which is also now being an old technology, unlike statistics, as I mentioned, accounting is an old technology, but it's being, in, it's being applied now to novel uh, uh, spheres of life, activity, uh, and not just economic activity. So uh, yeah, it's very dramatic, and ultimately I focus on the uh, manufacturing or the industrial schedule of the federal census of 1850, 
and I discover that they use Shattuck's individualized taxonomy to also count industrial production, which generates, in fact, it results in a manufacturing census that's defined as a great scientific success, and that is because of the unprecedented amount of detail and, uh, and precision. But the detail and the precision, I point out, is achieved just as what happens in the accounting ledger. It's achieved by using a taxonomy that's only capable of counting what's being produced for the market. That which is no longer commercial or no longer commodified is no longer counted. You can't count it. No one keeps a record of it. And thus it's no longer known. And thus it disappears from our understanding of economy And if the government is making policy on the basis of the breathtaking new breadth of the statistics, then public policy or economic policy will then assure the fact that non-commercial industry has no raison d'etre whatsoever. Yeah, fascinating. So tell us about what you're working on next. Do you have any new projects that are in the pipeline? I do, I do. I'm writing a book on the... um, well, you know, it's unfinished business, just like I think a lot of what we do. We are striving to understand better the world we live in, which is based on striving to understand better the world that was. So I keep, so things keep kind of evolving. I thought that in my treatment of the individuals, transition or a transformation into individualism, I would write about another new technology of the self that that comes into being exactly in the same years. I think the same year that the American Statistical Association was founded, and that is photography. In the end, it didn't work. It didn't fit in any in the narrative structure of accounting for capitalism. But then I thought, well, maybe I'll devote my next book to the invention of photography in order to explain that, in fact, the invention of photography it resulted directly from the political and social and cultural needs of a new uh, liberalizing society that had transferred control into the hands of uh, uh, private uh, citizens, and that photography proved to be a very effective uh, technology or source of truth about, uh, a, 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 about who we are and a kind of a truth, much like statistics, that could be turned into a common denominator. And thus we're able to create society or social experience based, surprisingly, at least in old patriarchal terms, surprisingly based on a private prerogative. Well, it sounds fascinating. I can't wait to, to read it. Uh, thanks so much, Michael Zakim, for joining us. Well, thanks, Lucas, for inviting me for the opportunity to, to talk about myself. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs>